Hello, everybody. It is me, Kinsey Grant, host of Thinking is Cool, popping back into your podcast feeds with an incredible interview that I know you are going to love. So this interview that you are about to hear first aired on my YouTube channel last week. So if you wanted to be one of the first to hear it and watch it at the same time, go subscribe over there. I will put the link in the show notes. Uh, But this is an interview with Brian Morrissey, who writes the newsletter, The Rebooting. It's also a great podcast, but The Rebooting is just this really fantastic news letter all about media, the future of journalism, the ways that we approach digital information and content. And Brian is just an incredibly smart, savvy person. I cannot wait for you to hear this interview, hear it in its entirety. You heard a clip in my last episode. This is the full extended cut of the interview itself. I'm so thrilled for you to hear it. I hope you will let me know if you have any feedback, any ideas, anybody you would like to hear from, I aim to please. So you know where to find me, Kinsey at thinkingiscool.com. If you want to slide into the DMs, I'm always in there as well. Without further ado, I will get right into the interview though. Here we go. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. Is it possible that we might see the extinction of mainstream media institutions as we know them, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, sooner rather than later? If the last few years are any indication, we as consumers have really lost faith in institutions. Institution itself has become a bad word. And in its place, we've instead taken a liking to individuals. You know the saying, people don't like brands, people like people. It's why we develop these deep parasocial relationships with people we only really know through a screen. These days, we are a lot more likely to trust an individual creator than we are an institution. But with that shift come some side effects. Side effects may include, I'm just kidding, um, but there are side effects in the ways that we consume information and allow that information to impact the ways that we go about our lives and make decisions. In my last episode, I talked about, for example, very much not a journalist, Joe Rogan taking up the mantle as synthesizer of information, arbiter of details, pursuer of the truth. It was about the influencer-heavy future of journalism and what that future means for all of us. Today, I am peeling back another layer. What you are about to watch is the extended cut of my interview with Brian Morrissey, who is the writer of the very much revered rebooting newsletter all about media and advertising and the consumption of information in a digital arena. He also was the president and editor-in-chief of Digiday, and he's just a really respected figure in the media world, one of the smartest, savviest people I know. In this interview, you are going to hear Brian and me talk about a lot of big big brain ideas. Uh, We're talking the ramifications of instability in media, uh, personal branding as an advantage, a moat, if you will, for people who work in the journalism world, the failure of media institutions, and of course, the impacts of misinformation. You will also, I think, learn a lot about the ways that the information we consume that, of course, impacts our decisions, impacts our lives on a day-to-day basis, how that information flows through this complex, nuanced, often very imperfect system to get to us. So without further ado, I present my slightly condensed and lightly edited for clarity interview with the fantastic Brian Morrissey. Stick around to the end for a surprise. All right, let's get into it. I want to start with a a loaded question that I think is uh, representative of this entire conversation. Do you have a personal brand? Yes or no? Well, you know, I, I was talking about this actually on my own podcast um, earlier, and I feel like personal brand is kind of like being called like a genius or like or like pretty. It's or or, or handsome, and it's like you you shouldn't call yourself that 
Like you should allow other people to say it rather than say it, say it yourself. And I think that's what, what triggered a lot of this, um, this latest kerfuffle um, about personal brands in journalism. So this interview actually had just perfect timing. Right as I was booking this interview with Brian, media Twitter descended into mayhem. Uh, it kind of felt like that scene from um, Mean Girls when Regina George, famed chaos agent, uh, prints out the copies of pages from the burn book. That is what happened on media Twitter right as I was making this episode. Love when that happens. Um, so I'm going to explain really quickly what exactly this Mean Girls reenactment was actually all about. So uh, to make sure that we have all the information we need to fully understand why this matters, I'm going to read a bit from this fantastic play-by-play -play written on Medium by Elizabeth Spires. Quote, this week's intramural media kerfuffle revolves around backlash to the idea that journalists need to be brands themselves, apart from the institutions they work for. It was precipitated by an article in Insider about the New York Times and retention problems potentially caused by the Times' approach to outside projects. At the center of this conversation on Twitter were two high-profile Times journalists. Maggie Haberman and Taylor Lorenz, the latter of whom recently left the Times for the Washington Post. The short version of what happened is that Lorenz pointed to the Insider article in which she is quoted and affirmed that it's important for younger journalists especially to develop themselves as brands, and Haberman responded by accusing Lorenz of attention-seeking, and a host of other established journalists chimed in with whatever the tweet equivalent is of a vomit emoji, mostly triggered by the word brand, but also by the dynamic at play between Lorenz and Haberman." End quote. While it might seem a little bit insular to the people who work in newsrooms or who have been in newsrooms a lot in their past, I think that it is a lot broader than just people who work in journalism and media. It's much bigger than that. It's about how we get our information and what we expect of the people who give us that information, but more on that later. All right, now back to my conversation with Brian Morrissey. I think everyone has a reputation and I think it's really important uh, in any profession to um, to stand out. Otherwise, you're just going to be replaceable. And so the idea that you would want to be unique and have like a good reputation that would that would give you an advantage in a very competitive marketplace just seems to me to be smart and obvious. I think it brings yeah. up this interesting shift that I personally have had to reckon with over the last couple of years. Um, the reality of working in media today, it's certainly less, um, I don't know, a, less choppy than it was, I would say, a couple of years ago in my personal experience as somebody who graduated right into the post pivot to video <laughs> journalism world. Um, but I want to hear your perspective on, on that aspect of this conversation that in the media world where it, this often is considered to be a very unstable career path. If you work in capital M media, meaning any number of different <laughs> career paths, it is often labeled as, as something that is not always the most stable mm. career. Why do you think that is? And how do you think that injecting this idea of setting yourself apart with a personal brand that either you, you create yourself, you curate yourself or somebody assigns to you, how do you think that allows yeah. for people who work in media to become, I don't know, a little less uh, dispensable? Yeah. Well, I mean, I hope it doesn't happen to you, but like anyone like my age has like lost their job in, in, in journalism. And I think the precariousness of the, of the profession um, is kind of underappreciated by people who are not um, in it because um, it sucks to have to pack up your things and put them in a little box and like and like go away because particularly when someone made that you had nothing to do with bad business decisions that got made.
made. You, you mentioned the pivot to video. And a lot of people had to pack up their boxes because people on the quote unquote business side um, were, were chasing after some dream that never materialized. So I think that it in general just gives, um, uh, it, it affects journalists. I mean, the, the reality of the profession is, um, you know, it, nobody goes into journalism to make a lot of money, but that also um, leads to a lack of security. Um, and, and so how do you protect that? I think we, like when we think about like the, the, the growth of personal brands, I think that the growth in unionization is part of the same, it's two halves of the same coin. Um, people want you know, a, a measure of, of security, but they also want a measure of autonomy. We feel like you have control over, over how things go. I mean, you know, the market is always gonna be, you know, dictate a lot of that, but it's a bad feeling when you're sort of at the mercy of decisions that you're not even often part of. It's difficult to understand until you've been on the inside of it. But I think your answer also, to me, illustrates some of this generational divide that has really been a big part of mm. the the kerfuffle on Twitter over the last couple of, of yeah. days about the idea of a personal brand that I think speaks to the larger question of, of what it means to work in media today, what it means to pursue a career in journalism today is very different from what it was a handful of years ago. And this idea that some of these, um, I don't want to call them older journalists, they're by no means older, but people who have worked they in are. journalism. They are, Kinsey, let's be honest. <laughs> We're all labeled as boomers right i think at this point like those of us who are even gen x but it's more of a mindset really and i think part of that is just the experience like i graduated from journalism school in, in 2000 like and what they were training everyone to be was generalists and the idea was that you would you would move to like altoona and work for some local paper and then you would get like a big break to like get to charlotte and then like from charlotte you maybe got to atlanta and then by by some luck of, of, of fate, you got to the New York Daily News, you know, and like that was like the pinnacle. And I think that a lot of that is ingrained in, yeah, it's an, it's an older, I think I can say that because I'm part of it, an older generation of journalists, um, because it was like a lot of it was paying your dues and stuff like this. And that was part of the lore of the profession. Um, and I think some of that was actually used against like journalists because it was the idea that this was a calling and so you couldn't ask to like get paid like a living wage or like, you know, to have like a middle class even existence. Um, and I don't I think a new generation is probably rejecting that as, you know, just because it's like just like they're rejecting a lot of things that don't make sense. Like, you know, it's it's we did a lot of things just because that's the way they've always been done. And that that's happens to, to all generations to some degree. It'll end up happening to you guys, too. Um, but new generations come in and they're like, nah, this, this doesn't make any sense. And I think that's just part of it, because, you know, I know when I graduated from from journalism school, I went into business journalism because I did not want to move to Altoona. Nothing against every all of your um, viewers in Altoona. Um, but I just didn't want to do it. I wanted to live in New York City. And so I wanted to go into business journalism for both one, like, frankly, lifestyle reasons. I wanted to live in New York City. I don't want to move. And, uh, and, and partly because I wanted to differentiate. And I was like, if I can go narrow and deep in this area of business journalism, what I found out was like business was not enough. I had to go even further uh, or deeper. And so I... You know, I decided to really specialize in, in, in a growing area, which was at the time it was like online advertising, you know, like internet advertising was really just starting to take off. 
Um, and so to me, that was like the really critical thing is how do you, how do you give yourself as many competitive advantages as possible? And to me, the, uh, this idea of like personal brand, again, in quotes, is, is just the same way of how do you, how do you develop leverage for yourself in the marketplace? I know that sounds like anti because reporters are not supposed to talk like that and stuff like this, but that's the reality. And if you don't, you're just going to be commodity. You're going to be replaced very quickly. There's a reason that a lot of these newsrooms, um, you know, they're 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 not filled with people my age for sure. Where did the people my age go? Well, they're in like PR or something like this because ultimately these business models are premised on having low priced, low cost, uh, quote unquote, talent in order to um, support them. And so when you get older, you get things like mortgages and stuff like this, and you get like churned out of the profession. And so I think that, you know, younger people who are looking to differentiate themselves in the market should be like sort of, you know, applauded for that. I think that's just smart. The idea that things have shifted is not always a bad thing, but I think a lot of the resentment on both sides of this argument comes from the fact that it's the people like Maggie Haberman, right, who are weighing in and saying, well, I don't have a personal brand. I think she does. And she's also a, a bad example, right? She's not one of these people who got churned out of the system, chewed up and spit out because it sucks so much. She's one of the people, one of the rare cases of somebody who made it big. Yeah, it's survivorship bias, right? Um, right. You know, when you're the survivor, you know, you think everyone should do the same. And and, and that's like, that's. I think that's just like normal for, for people to have that. I think it would be better to have a little bit of self-awareness for it. But I think, you know, what a lot of it comes down to is... Again, there is definitely a generational divide, but I think, I think what it, it, I think, I think if there is this sort of boomer sort of mentality about it, a lot of times it comes down to the idea that uh, uh, that, and I think it's wrong in a lot of cases that people haven't quote unquote paid their dues. That like their their the personal brands, it's the personal, it's about personality, not about the work and stuff. And Let's just use Taylor Lorenz as an example because, you know, Taylor was was at the heart of this. She just regularly turned out like must-read stories. Like she's just really good at her job. Like that's at the end of the day why she has like, a personal brand. She's doing something right and I think it should be respected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I think that at the end of the day, you can come up with as many adjectives as you want yeah. that try to, um, you know, encapsulate your personal brand. But the most important one is whether or not you're good at what you're doing. I spoke to some like journalism school class and like, you know, I asked them like how many, how many people are aspiring to go work at like an established newsroom and like, you know, like two hands out of 30 went up. Um, and, and more people were attracted to a more independent path. I think that's part of just where the overall economy and society are today. So if it, that's just normal because institutions across the board have, have failed people. And um, a new generation is coming up and has, has, has seen that. I mean, they saw, they saw what happened in the financial crisis and um, they saw the housing bubble and they're saddled with these crazy student debts because we have this this messed up system and stuff. So no wonder they're questioning things. <laughs> I, I think that this is a perfect time to bring up the idea that you have about the, the concept of what the future of journalism or even I think what the future of media writ large looks like is going to lie somewhere on this spectrum between everybody yeah. works at these institutions and everybody works as an individual creator, totally independent. It's probably not going to be one or the other. It's probably going to be some combination of both. And I would love to hear your, your perspective yeah. on this, what the future looks like 
individual versus institutional. Yeah, that's what I like think of this continuum between institutional and individual. And I think like everything like in um, our world today, everyone goes to the polls, right? They go, it's either all or nothing, right? You're either like a YouTuber and or a sub stacker, or you work at like, you know, the New York Times or Bloomberg or something like this. And like, there's going to be like gradations in between. And so there's no like one answer. For instance, like a lot of people like, you know, the upsides of institutions are, are, are great for them. And that's fine. Like there's a lot of different ways to live your life. It's just preference. I don't know. I really don't understand why people get so hot and bothered over stuff that like, it's just personal preference. Some people want a more independent path. Some people want are, are willing and are able to take more risk to get more upside of, of a more independent path. Some people either they, they can't do that or don't want to do that. And, you know, that's just, a mindset and preference thing. So, but I do think that one of the growing areas that we're going to see are are places that are are going to look at what's going on with the creator economy and with these individuals building their own brands and are able to marry the best of both worlds. The all the upsides of institutional brands of of having the the support infrastructure of having things like a legal department if you get sued because you make someone someone uh, mad or uncomfortable um, these are all real upsides right but at the same time I think you know I think it was said to me like you know the individuals making a brand rather than a brand making individuals is likely going to be a big category. Um, you see this in, in, in other areas um, because people trust individuals, I think, more than faceless institutions. Um, and particularly, you know, institutions have not had a good run probably going back to um, probably going back to Watergate, but really going back to like even uh, the Iraq war. Um, all of our institutions have come up short. So it stands to reason that that people would look to to create new new companies and, and, and new ways of like organizing. So I don't think it's all or nothing. I think there'll be people who are very comfortable in, in, um, in institutional brands. There's some people that are gonna, uh, want to be completely independent, completely autonomous and stuff. And then there's going to be some stuff in between that are collectives, if you will, and that allow people to have their own like brand and share in some of the upside of the value that they create. And I think they should, um, but are, are able to have the, the support that, that comes with, with established companies. Does any of this matter to people who are not working in media, to people who don't have a journalism degree and don't love, you know, we are navel gazers like by, I don't know, yeah. tradition. And, and we often engage in a lot of uh, the, the discourse that feels really, really monumentally important to people who are in media. But I wonder mm -hmm. if any of these average consumers who are going to either consume content from the New York Times or from Taylor Lorenz's Twitter page, you know, like what, what matters to them? Do, is this important? Does anybody give a shit if they're not working in media right now? I take your point that like, you know, this is an incredibly navel gazing uh, profession. So yeah, that's, that's all, that's all fair. Um, but I do think that there is, there, there is something there with um, more personal forms of media. I think you see it with YouTube or with podcasts or um, even newsletters in that um, there's something more personal about it. I mean, I call it like primary engagement media. There's a bunch of different forms of media. Um, that, that's why, you know, there's always going to be 
institutional media, right? It's, it's, it's not going to go away or something like this because most people just want, you know, good information or be entertained and stuff like this. But there is going to be like an emerging category of, of primary engagement media that people seek out. And I think that having a, having like a, a, a face to that and a, and a, a, a person to it is, is, can, can lead to like a, a stronger tie. Um, and, and you see it like on YouTube with like Mr. Beast and stuff like this. Like the, there's, there is a lot of power, even like Joe Rogan and stuff. I know people hate Joe Rogan, um, but there's some, there, there's clearly something going on, um, throughout the sort of media and entertainment ecosystem, um, that it would stand to reason it's going to also affect, um, affect news and journalism. Yeah. You bring up a really interesting idea that I have been wrestling with quite a lot when you think about people like Mr. Beast or Joe Rogan often being resources for information that is important for consumers, um, but maybe they don't engage in the fact-checking that we in the journalism world love so much. More likely, they absolutely do not do that. Um, And I I think that there is a, a lot of interesting conversation to be had around how much we trust people who don't necessarily come from a journalism background. And then I have to think, why do I trust anyone who does come from a journalism background? At the end of the day, it's like, you just have to be a discerning consumer. Yeah. I mean, there's no accreditation process, as far as I know, for, for journalism. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, no. So, and I, I think they're, you know, look. It's the, my ego. The, well, the content, like, ecosystem, if you will, like, I'm using a lot of words that should be in quotes. Um it is is so vast and varied and deep right now that I think it's we're in this weird period where we're trying to get our heads around it. I know, like as someone who grew up like analog, like it's it's really baffling. Like uh, I think like people who grew up digital are more um, are more attuned to it um, because they're used to it to some degree, and I think they're more they're more discerning than than older generations. I think that's why misinform misinformation doesn't only um, affect older people, but it certainly seems to be more prevalent, um, judging from the emails I get from my parents. Um, yeah. I don't know, maybe they're watching it now, but like, <laughs> uh, you it's know, that, I think like it's the bullshit radar that like you're either born yeah. with it or not, and more and more people are born with it these days. I think my favorite part of that interview with Brian was actually the last couple of minutes. It's so interesting to me to think about how younger generations are born with a much more perceptive bullshit radar just naturally. And I really think that's because they grew up online. It's almost like maybe any kids born after, I'm gonna go ahead and say like the 80s, maybe the mid 80s, they have this inherent skepticism. It's a skepticism of of what they see online. And while in a lot of ways that is sick, like very good to not get scammed, I think it's also, maybe the word is sad, it's maybe a little sad. It's sad that we have such enormous trust issues. But I think in a lot of ways, those trust issues are manifesting today with what I referenced in the very first couple of minutes of this video. They're manifesting in this deep distrust, this deep skepticism of institutions. Time is a flat circle and so is this episode. So when I think about my personal brand, which is a difficult string of words to get through, the ideas that come to mind for me are words like intellectual, accessible, Maybe goofy is a fair term to describe 
who I am and what I do. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it's hard to say. Like Brian mentioned, it's like calling yourself a genius. You, you probably shouldn't do it. You should probably let other people do it. So with that in mind, I would be curious to hear how you might describe the Kinsey Grant or the Thinking is Cool brands. Um, you might not be surprised to find out that you are actually an early adopter to Thinking is Cool. That is so exciting. <laughs> Um, this is this is new. This YouTube series is new. So um, I would love to hear how you would describe this brand so that I can either double down on that or completely change everything about what I'm doing and how I'm approaching this project. So tell me in the comments what you think the brand is. Your input is more precious than gold. I hope that you have learned a lot from this flat circle. I certainly have expanded my own understanding of media in making it. Now at the beginning I did promise a surprise. So without further ado, I present the surprise. It is a clip from my days as a capital J journalist, I was working for The Street, uh, the year 2018. The vibe, I had just put in my two weeks notice and I finally convinced my editor that this was an award-winning pitch. The result, certainly, certainly a brand of some kind. Anyway, here you go. If you haven't heard of Spike Seltzer yet, you might be running with the wrong crowd. These bubbly fizzy drinks, just like this one, pack a punch at about 6% alcohol by volume. They're low calorie, low carb, and low sugar, but definitely not low on fans. See, these drinks have become immensely popular with the 21 plus crowd lately. Last summer, they were only worth about $60 million as an industry, but experts tell me that that figure has ballooned more than 400% in the last year alone. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so that was, that was certainly tough to watch. Uh, with that, I'm going to call it a video. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for tuning in. I will be back next week with uh, an exploration of the concept of champagne socialism. It's going to be really fun. You're going to learn a ton. I can't wait to see you. I'm Kenzie Grant, and have a good one.